Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And if you were here last week, you know that we began a new series on this um, unique gospel, the gospel of the Apostle John. And I wanted to provide you an outline, as I always do whenever we kick off a new book series. And so I've provided you a little outline that's in your bulletin. Hopefully you've already seen that. If you missed this, um, you missed a bulletin, there's some of these on the back table. But I just want to draw your attention to that for a quick second here because uh, you know I force myself to do this really for my own good and ultimately for your good because uh, I I need to be able to boil it all down, whatever we're studying, into a simple title, a simple theme, uh, mine out the key verse or verses and then just to provide some kind of outline or um, just pathway, if you will, a map, a road map uh, for our study. And so uh, as we talked about last week, that um, the really main theme of this whole gospel is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the key verses there. And uh, the, the whole theme is to believe and live. And uh, those are the two words that are used um, well, two of the words that are used the most in the Gospel of John, the word believe used some 96 times, 98 times, the word live 36 times. Um, we're going to see as we go through this book that that's the whole point, and he's just going to say it over and over and over again. Uh, it's going to sound like a broken record, but uh, he's got a point uh, in, in, uh, in us believing in Christ, the Son of God, that we might live. And uh, a real simple way to outline the book is, is just to see it really in three sections. Jesus' public ministry, chapters 1 through 12. Uh, Jesus' private ministry, verses 13 to 17. That's referring to his, his private time that he had with the disciples in the upper room. And then Jesus' passion, which is, of course, his death, his resurrection, in chapters 18 through 21. And interesting just to see the first 12 chapters covers a few years of Jesus' life, and then the, the, the rest of the chapters are really just a few weeks and even just a few hours. That time in the upper room, chapters 13 to 17, is just a few hours, time span, but it, it, it is made for one of the richest portions of, of Scripture uh, there in, in what Jesus said in preparing his disciples for his departure, his death and departure. Uh, maybe a more uh, logical, uh, chronological outline there is, is we see how uh, John presents Jesus as, through his incarnation. Uh, here in the first 18 verses, we see uh, how he presents himself to uh, the world in chapters 1 through 4. We see in chapter 5 through 10 the opposition to Christ beginning and then a full-scale rejection of Christ in chapters 11 and 12 where they purpose to kill him. And then Jesus um, uh, re- retreats to the upper room with his disciples and spends the next uh, few chapters there uh, talking about very intimate details about he and his father and what his heart is for them in the future. And then, of course, the crucifixion in verses chapters 18 and 19, the resurrection, chapter 20, and then somewhat of a commission of the Son of God uh, there in, in chapter 21. I, I didn't see any other commentators do that with chapter 21, but we know that the other gospels end with the great commission, right? Jesus commissioning disciples. Well, in, in John chapter 21, he really just zeroes in on Jesus' commission to Peter, singularly, and how he was going to be the head of the church. 
um, in the book of Acts. And so uh, I think you, we could call it a commission of the Son of God, even though we understand it just as, as Peter. Well, with that as our just overview, you could kind of tuck that away somewhere, uh, maybe in the front of the Gospel of John or maybe in the front of your Bible. But uh, we are going to begin this morning actually launching into the text itself. Last week was just uh, by way of introduction, and it was um, really just all the background of the book. But this morning, we're going to begin to um, go through some of the initial verses here. And, and uh, I'm going to be uh, reading for you verses 1 through 18. Not that we're going to try to cover all this this morning, but you really need to see these verses together because they really serve as the introduction or prologue to this entire gospel. This is the, the, the gateway, if you will, the entryway into the gospel of John. And so they need to be viewed together. And then we'll take a few weeks to, to, to unpack them and, and take them apart and, and explain what they mean. And so go ahead and follow along in your Bibles as I read John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man, came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized Through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Father, we come to this majestic text that is beyond our comprehension. And yet we thank you that you have not left us here just to wonder. But you've given us your spirit to illuminate our minds, to help us to grasp even a little bit of what we read here. And so I pray as we look at these verses in the next few weeks, Lord, that your spirit would open up our minds to understand, our hearts to to grasp what is being said here about the Lord Jesus Christ and that it would radically change our lives. For his glory and honor we pray. Amen. Well, one of the unmistakable and undeniable truths that the Bible teaches is that Jesus is God. Just listen to some of the 
verses that affirm that Jesus is God are what theologians call the deity of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Colossians 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, Christ, the firstborn of all creation, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Colossians 2, 9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Titus exhorts us to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter introduces his second letter. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Christ is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then later on in verse 8, the writer quotes God talking to the Son, God the Father talking to the Son, and he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. God the Father calling God the Son, God. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, John closes his first epistle with these words. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so there's all these passages throughout the New Testament that prove and affirm that Jesus is God. But nowhere in Scripture is the deity of Christ declared in a more clear, concentrated, compelling way than the Gospel of John. And I told you last week that John really provided us a masterful apologetic that Jesus is God. And uh, over the years, I've marked out certain verses, kind of a, a kind of a flow of thought that John has here in his gospel. That whenever I've been faced with the challenge of, of of talking with someone about the deity of Christ and proving to them from the Scripture that Jesus is indeed God, uh, I just take them to the gospel of, gospel of John. I don't, I don't even go to those other verses. Uh, I, I go straight to the Gospel of John. And I told you that I have these marked out and I wanted to provide you this same kind of list of verses so that you too can be ready and equipped to, to give an answer for the hope that's in you. And so I just want to walk with you just quickly through these, this series of verses. These are not all the verses in the Gospel of John about the deity of Christ, but these I think are the most formative verses that make the case the clearest and the most compelling. Obviously, we need to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You might want to underline that verse, star that verse, put a, maybe a number one by that verse. And then go to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Christ became flesh, and we saw the glory of God. And then you need to move to chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18, and now we begin to see the opposition that Jesus faced because of what he claimed. 
And there are those that would say, well, Jesus never said he was God. He never claimed to be God. Well, apparently you've not read the Gospel of John because that's exactly what he claimed. And the people that heard him say certain things to that end knew exactly that's what he meant. And that's why they wanted to kill him. And so John chapter 5, verse 18 says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself, what? Equal with God. Chapter 8, verse 58. Again, just maybe underlining these, highlighting these verses, somehow creating a little chain reference for yourself. But in chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, what? I was? I am. In other words, he was talking about that he existed before Abraham, and then he took on himself the title that God gave himself, the the great I am, back in Exodus chapter 4. Verse 59, notice There was no mistaking what he meant by that, what he was implying, because they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This uh, whole hostility towards Christ really climaxes in John chapter chapter 10, in verse 30, John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You could even say God... I and the Father are one in the same. Notice again, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. (laughs) And if you say, well, ah, maybe they were just mad at the guy that didn't like him. Well, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be who? God. They knew that he was claiming to be God, and that that, that in their minds that was blasphemy, and that he deserved to die. Chapter 14, chapter 14, verses 8, 9, and 10, here's one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, and uh, asking somewhat of an innocent question. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? In other words, Philip, if you really understood who I was, you wouldn't be asking me that question. Because he who has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? And so, it's very clear what... Jesus was saying here that, again, he and the Father are are the same. And then this whole uh, kind of flow of thought, I think, climaxes with this this crescendo in the most unlikely place where you have, of all people, doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, who happened to be absent when Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, and they said, hey, Jesus is alive. He says, I ain't buying it. Not until I see it. With my own eyes, and I actually put my hands, right, in the wounds of his hand and the wound in his side. And so here's Jesus in John chapter 20, verse 27. He, he arrives again. He appears again, and he says, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it in my side. 
and do not be unbelieving but believing. And notice Thomas's answer. Thomas's response here. He said to him, my Lord and my what? God. My Lord and my God. He got it. And, and, and that's what John wants us to get, if you will, from his gospel. And this is just one example of how John structured his gospel in a way as to lead the, his readers to believe that Jesus is God. And we're right there, the very next verse, uh, John chapter 20, verse 30, is his explicit purpose for the gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, what? Life in his name. And so there's the purpose for this great gospel. And again, we said last week that the two words there in verse 31 are critical to our understanding of the gospel. Believe and live. Believe and live. That's really the best way to summarize the gospel of John. And so the gospel here, John's gospel, proves beyond a shadow of doubt that the Son of God was actually God himself in human form. And his name was Jesus. And so no one can deny that Jesus existed, okay? Unless you're a fool, okay? Because you'd have to argue with history, okay? It's an historic fact that a man named Jesus literally lived and died 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. In fact, the entire calendar of the world is based on the birth of Jesus, right? We have B.C. and A.D. B.C., obviously, before Christ. A.D. stands for the Latin Anno Domini, or Domini, which is the year of our Lord. And so the... We schedule our lives, if you will, around this historic birth, the birth of Jesus Christ. So so there's really no question if Jesus actually existed. The real question is, is who was this guy? Who who is this guy, Jesus? And that's the question that Jesus' cousin and closest friend, John, set out to answer when he sat down to write out a personal eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Never names himself in the gospel, but he refers to himself as, the, as, as basically Jesus' nearest and dearest disciple. And we said last week that John's gospel is unique from the first three gospels in many ways, not the least of which is his introduction. And so turn back again to John chapter 1. Now, if you're familiar with the other gospels, Mark gospel, he introduced his gospel with the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and he described Jesus' early days in ministry. He just kind of got right to Jesus' ministry. Luke introduced his gospel with the angelic prophecies and births of both John the Baptist and and Jesus, and then described uh, Jesus in the early days of his life here on earth. The only gospel writer who has anything to say about Jesus' childhood, while it be one verse, I guess really is a little passage, but he's the only one that talks about Christ's childhood. Matthew introduced his gospel going back to the Old Testament, right, and all the promises of the Messiah, and he provides a genealogy of Christ's life or or Christ's genealogy uh, to prove his lineage, that he was indeed the Messiah that God promised in the Old Testament. 
Now, when you come to John's gospel, John went farther back in time than any of the synoptic gospels, and he introduced his gospel with the cosmic origin of Jesus in eternity past and described the mysteries of his divine glory. I mean, there's, there's no wading into the gospel of John. I mean, John just picks us up and he throws us headfirst into the deep end. But don't worry, you're not going to drown, okay? Um, as one classic commentator said, the gospel of John is a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. So you've got this, this, this simplicity and profundity combined together. John's gospel is at once simple and, and, and yet profound. Take the first verse, for example. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, it's almost like you're reading a children's book. And, and like, like somebody learning how to read. That's kind of how you teach a child to read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's just kind of a, a, a play on each of these words, and there's just this one simple sentence with these three simple phrases. And yet it contains enough theology for a lifetime of study. R. Kent Hughes said this about verse 1. He said it's the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. You're looking at it right there. No other verse in Scripture is more compact in, in, in pulsating with, 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 and pregnant with meaning than John 1.1. I mean, I liken it to a shot of theological espresso. I don't drink this stuff, but my wife is hooked on it. And, uh, and she just tells me that it's this super concentrated coffee, you know, that just kind of gives you a boom, an instant wake up, buzz kind of thing. And, uh, and so this is, this is a, a shot of a theological espresso. It's, it's super concentrated, doctrinally rich stuff. In fact, the first 18 verses of John's gospel are the same way. It's like drinking 18 Red Bulls all at once, one after the other. And you're like, whoa, dude, slow down. You're going to hurt yourself, man. You, you, you can't be drinking all this all at once. And that's why we're going to take our time and kind of sip our way through these verses in a few sermons rather than just guzzle them all down this morning in one sermon. I think if I tried that, I wouldn't be alive because I, I had a hard time getting my mind around just the first couple phrases here, let alone the first 18 verses. But these first 18 verses, I think it's important that we see them together like I said earlier, because they really serve as the prologue or the introduction to the book. And in this prologue, John gives an introductory overview or a basic summary of the entire book and really sets the stage for what's about to come. This is sort of like his thesis statement that's intended to draw us into his gospel and then lay out the themes and the topics that he's going to cover. And we're going to see key terms, key concepts that that are going to show up again and again in the flow of the gospel. And here he makes just a number of breathtaking, mind-blowing statements about Jesus that he expands on and and, and proves as he goes on in his gospel. Like, for instance, the fact that Jesus is God. Uh, The fact that Christ is a source of life and light. And he introduces concepts like darkness 
and witness and world and glory and truth and grace and receiving Christ and rejecting Christ. We're going to see all these things here in these first 18 verses, but they're, they're, they're we're all, what we're also going to see in the rest of the gospel. And so really, he just is, 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 is stating his theme here in these first 18 verses. And I tried to just get my mind around the theme. And so I'm just going to read for you what I wrote down as far as a, a theme for the book of John, more of a, a theological theme, if you will. The eternal Son of God came into the world in the form of a man named Jesus so that the glorious grace and truth of God might be revealed and received. Those who receive him by faith will be pardoned for their sin and granted eternal life in heaven, and those who reject him will be judged for their sin and sentenced to eternal punishment in hell. That's the basic message, the basic theme that John is is unveiling, if you will, and explaining here in his gospel. Simply stated, Jesus Christ is God's Son who came to earth to bring life to all those who believe in him. That's the point of the gospel of John. And I've actually titled this, this first section, this opening section of John, you see in the bulletin and on your notes, um, I, I, I decided to call it Jesus 101, okay? Jesus 101. I'm sure you're familiar with that term 101. We see it show up in like college courses and things like that. You know, you have science 101, history 101, economics 101. What is it? It's the kind of the introductory class, the, the prerequisite class. It's the basic introduction to a subject, the general overview of a topic. And so in these first 18 verses, John provides us kind of a Jesus 101 Basic introduction, general overview of who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and what our response to him should and shouldn't be. And I've divided these verses into eight truths or, or, or concepts about Jesus that we're going to see again over and over in John's gospel. And uh, I've listed them there in the outline in the back. Hopefully you can pick that up when you came in. You can get it on your way out if you didn't. But uh, we're just going to kind of wade into this thing a little bit. Uh, or maybe just now that we've already been thrown in the deep end, we're going to try to struggle our way to the side and hang on a little bit, right, and uh, catch our breath. But we're going to look, first of all, at uh, the origination of Christ. Not that there was an origination, because that sounds heretical if we really stop there, because he had no origination. But the point is, that the first truth here that he talks about in verses 1 and 2 is that Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always existed. And again, back to verses 1 and 2, Jesus, or excuse me, John makes three astounding statements that affirm the deity of Christ, that he was eternally God, he was equally God, and he was essentially God. Notice how he begins. In the beginning was the Word. Now what comes into your mind when you read or hear that phrase, in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I really, I, I believe that John clearly intended that to be what came into our mind when we read those words in the beginning. That we were to think back of the opening verse of the Bible, looking back to eternity, really, really when time began, but even in eternity past, right, in the beginning, right, he wants us to be thinking back there. So he's getting our mind to go in that direction. And he says, in the beginning, way back when, was the Word. 
the logos in the Greek. It's a word used 40 times in this gospel. It was a, a concept that was widely used in both the Greek and Jewish cultures of that day. And again, just to simplify it, he's, he's basically using it, harnessing this idea, this concept of the logos, the, the word, to explain Jesus and who he was. And so we understand a word. If let's just take the, the basic meaning, definition of a word. A word is a unit of speech by which we express ourselves to others. We use words to tell other people what we want them to know. We, it, it, words are how we communicate what we're thinking or feeling. And so God used Jesus to tell people what he wanted them to know about him. He revealed himself to us through the word. Now, this wasn't the first time. Uh, the only time that Jesus has, or that God has tried to communicate with us, he, he did it first and foremost through what? Through creation, right? That he revealed, the Bible says he revealed himself, he communicated, he, he, he just put on display his glory for us so that there would be no one that all men would be without excuse, right, that there's a God. Just by looking around at the creation, how he's revealed himself, he's communicated himself through creation. He's also communicated himself through our conscience. He, he's, 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 he's spoken to us, if you will, through our conscience. Uh, Romans chapter 2 talks about that we all have a conscience, right? And we know right and wrong. Even if we've never been taught right and wrong, we just have an innate understanding of what is right and what is wrong. That's our conscience, and then, of course, he, God communicated through his word, right? Through his revelation, through the canon, if you will. God communicates through the words and the pages of scripture. But ultimately, he communicated to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And I love how the, the writer of James, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says this in the first two verses of Hebrews. Listen to what it says, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so God's last and best expression of himself was Jesus Christ. In fact, God left his best for last, if you will. And this is how he chose to communicate himself in his, his, his magnum opus, if you will, was in fact him coming to earth, right? He created the world. He created us with a conscience. Uh, he gave us his word. And, and, and what more could he do but actually come himself in the form of a man? He came to earth to live among us in the person of Jesus Christ, and to die for us, to reveal what he was like, to demonstrate his great love for us. It's a profound thought. And so when we think about the life of Christ, the life of Jesus, we just can't go back 2,000 years ago to a manger in Bethlehem. Although that's nice and quaint and it's fun to think about at Christmas time, Right? We need, our mind has to go back where our minds can't even go, to eternity past, where he had no beginning, and to eternity future where he has no end. God has always been, Christ has always been, Jesus has always been, and will always be. He has this infinite existence. He never had a beginning. And that's why John knew a, a genealogy would be very inappropriate. 
for the point he was trying to make, that Jesus is God. God has no genealogy. He always was. He always will be. Notice he says in the beginning, was the word. And if that wasn't enough to try to get our minds around, he goes on, he says, and the word was with God. Are you kidding me? So not only was he way back there, he was with somebody else. Somebody else was back there with him. He wasn't the only one. Jesus wasn't the only one who existed in eternity past. Again, this is where we're introduced here in the New Testament to the concept of the Godhead. That there's more than one person who makes up the Godhead. And when you read the Old Testament, you, you pick up a hint of this concept. I mean, even in, in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word for God is Elohim, and it's a plural subject. Talking about God, but it's plural, and it's followed by a singular verb. A plural subject acts in a singular way. And of course, in Genesis 1.26... It's confirmed that something's going on here when God said, let me make man in my image according to my likeness. Is that how it goes? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And this, you say, okay, whoa, what's going on here? And, and again, we get to the New Testament and it becomes clearer. For example, uh, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels record Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, for example, says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so if you are an onlooker at Jesus' baptism, you're standing alongside the Jordan River, and you're watching this thing go down, and you're looking at the Son of God... And all of a sudden, you're seeing the Spirit of God, and then you're hearing Father God. And you're like, what's going on here, right? There's a lot of action going on here. But we see all three members of of the Godhead engaged at the baptism of Christ. And of course, Jesus, when he commissioned the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19, he told them to baptize uh, the disciples, other disciples, in the name of the what? Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so things begin to be more defined now. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, as Paul says his farewell to the church in Corinth, he gives them this blessing. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Basically saying, all the Godhead, right, be with all of you. So he has God the Son, God the Father and God, the Holy Spirit, in that verse. And this is where Christians came up with the concept of the Trinity. I'm sure you've all heard of the Trinity. Uh, just to warn you, you cannot find that word in the Bible. You can go from Genesis to Revelation, look, and where is this thing about the Trinity? And you're not going to find the word Trinity. It's simply a term that, that, that theologians came up with to describe this mystery of the Godhead, this one God in three persons. Let me give you a, a simple definition of Trinity. That's a misnomer. Simple definition of the Trinity. One God, eternally existing in three persons, equal in essence, but distinct in their role and function. One God, 
eternally existing in three persons, equal in essence, but distinct in their role and function. You've got God the Father, God the Son, and you've got God the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see this later on in the Gospel of John and in the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus the Son is talking about his relationship with the Father and how he can't wait to get back to that face-to-face fellowship with the Father that he enjoyed in heaven before in, in eternity past. But, but when he goes, don't worry, disciples, okay, don't fret. I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a helper, and that's the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about you got God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit all interacting together. And so the point is this, is that Jesus, when he says, and the Word was with God, Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. We already read John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, right? And so before time began and before he came to earth in the form of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity enjoyed an intimate face-to-face relationship with the Father. In fact, he says in John 17, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so he's praying and asking God to to glorify him so that he could return to his former glory in heaven alongside God the Father. Now, you're thinking, that's a lot going on here. (laughs) But there's more. In the beginning was the Word, okay, that blew my mind, and the Word was with God, that boggled my mind even more, and now he leaves the best to last, and the Word was God. Jesus was God, in essence, in character. Jesus was God, the Word, we're talking about Jesus here, the Word was God. Now, What's so ironic to me is that this phrase, which I think proves the deity of Christ better than any other passage in Scripture, is the very phrase that cults use to try to disprove the deity of Christ. I mean, if you're going to try to explain away the deity of Christ, don't use this passage. Okay, you got no business using this passage, okay? And yet it shows how satanically inspired it is that they would go for the jugular text in the Word of God and try to misinterpret it and misapply it. I'm sure that a number of you have had that conversation at your doorstep, hopefully it was at your doorstep, uh, not in your living room necessarily, with that, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Who come by and they, they knock on the door and and they say, hi, how are you? And they have their little watchtower booklets, and they're there ready to talk to you about Jesus. And they'll begin a little, you know, kind of a memorized little deal that they start going through. In fact, just a year or two ago, a family came up on a Saturday morning, and I, you know, obviously knew who they were as the moment I looked out my little window, and I saw who they were, and, and I opened the door, and this little guy, the little guy, maybe he was probably like eight years old, kind of just started going off on this little sermon that he was like, had memorized. And he was like preaching at me before I ever said, hey, how you doing? Nice to have you. How can I help you? He was like, he just started preaching at me, this little eight-year-old. And I listened just for a few minutes and I said, excuse me just a second. I said, I have one question for you. I want to know who you think Jesus is. Would you tell me who, who Jesus is? 
And of course, they grab their translation of the scriptures and they turn immediately to what? John chapter 1, verse 1. And they say, look, the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And you're like, a God? That's not in my Bible. Well, you know, because in the Greek, there's no article. It doesn't say, and the Word was the God. There's no article. So we just filled in the A, because that's what John obviously meant, that Jesus wasn't God, the God. He was a God, small g. And you're just scratching your head going, whoa, I missed this sermon. Where was I when, when somebody was talking about this at church, right? And you start to scratch your head, and, 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 and they even actually show you in their Bibles. And so they argue that, listen, because there's no article before God in the Greek text, that, that, that Jesus is, is not fully God. He was a divine being, and that's why John used this article, or didn't use an article, I should say. Well, just so you know, and I don't want to bore you with the details, okay? Just so you know... They break all the basic rules of Greek grammar to, to get there, okay? They violate the rules of, of Greek grammar to interpret it as a God. Uh, literally, in the Greek, the phrase reads, God was the Word. In other words, the emphasis was on God, the fact that the Word was God. That's what he's getting at. And, and it's one of those things, that, okay, sorry, English class, junior high, replay that miserable time in your life, right, when you were learning all these grammatical rules, but there's thing, a thing called a subject and a predicate, right, and, and the predicate basically is the same in essence as the, you know, that the, whatever the ball is red, right, it means what, that it's the same, the ball is red, the red is the ball, right, um, that, that's the point, uh, and so the po- it's indicating here that the predicate, su- or the, the word, the subject is word, which means the subject word is the same essence in nature as the predicate, which is God, now you say, I- I'm going to forget that you got to give me something easier to remember than that, Ken. Well, you know what you do? If you're ever in that situation where they're trying to prove to you that the word was a God, just simply look at the other places in these first 18 verses where the same expression is used. Like verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 12, but as many as received into them, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Well, guess what? Look at it in their translation, and guess what it says? God. Doesn't say, hey, God. So why are you playing with Scripture here? You, you make this one, same exact structure in the Greek language, without an article, without a little the in front of it, but everywhere else it's translated God, big G, God. No, no mistake in that. So why do you all of a sudden just take that one and change it? Breaking the rules. Can't do that. Got to be consistent, right? And so, again, this is just a simple way to hopefully remember. But the point is, this is a battle to fight for, okay? This is a hill to die on because the deity of Christ is an essential, non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. Let me say it in very simple terms. You cannot be saved from your sins, and you will not go to heaven if you don't believe that Jesus is God. I mean, John 8, 24, Jesus himself said that. John 8, 24, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
Obviously, the I am he is that I am the great I am, that I am God, right? It's the whole context of the book. And maybe that's a verse you can remember to, to share with, with that person that might come to your door and want to convince you that Jesus was not God, but a God, little God, little G God. You can just say, hey, it's interesting. It says here that if you, you will die in your sins unless you believe that Jesus is God. John 8, 24. You say, what's the big deal about the deity of Christ? Well, let me read for you the words of Chuck Swindoll. I like the way how he says things very simply. He says, why is the deity of Christ so crucial to Christianity? Why must we insist that he is God? Simply put, we would have no Savior if Jesus Christ had been less than deity. No one but God could have lived out the law perfectly, thus earning righteousness for us, and no death but a divine death could have served an adequate punishment for the sins of humanity. It was not enough for Jesus to be a good teacher or moral example. He had to be God. And then he says this, not surprisingly, the deity of Christ is one of the doctrines most often assailed by the cults. For if they take away his deity, then they take away his atonement for sins. Then salvation becomes a matter of our achieving God's favor through our works. And that's exactly what the cults are, systems of righteousness by works. In other words, they want to they tell you all that you need to do in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. And if you don't do all this little list of things that they tell you to do, you know, shave your head, wear these clothes, drink the Kool-Aid, right, whatever it is, right, you can't go to heaven. And so they got to get away. they got to somehow get rid of this fact that Jesus is God and he's the only way that you can be made right with him. Well, John wanted to make sure we didn't miss the point as if how could you miss verse 1? But in verse 2, he just kind of repeats it. He says, he was in the beginning with God. Just want to make sure it's clear, he's saying. Jesus was not created. He was not a created being. He was the creator himself. And that brings us to the second point, and just real quickly, because it's a short point, we'll cover this and be done this morning. But, but we looked at the origination of Christ, uh, even though he never originated, the fact that Jesus has always existed. Secondly, here in verse 3, John describes how Jesus created everything, that Jesus created everything. And this shouldn't be a new concept to you, it may be. But the point is, he says in verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, the second member of the Trinity was the active agent in creation. You say, well, who created the world? God. Okay. But what member of the Trinity? Well, I think they all had a part. God was the architect, right? Jesus was maybe you could say the builder, the one that actually, the, the, the construction guy that went out there and did it, right? And then the Spirit of God hovered over the whole process, right? But notice how the Scriptures really highlight Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, as the active agent in creation. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, Paul says, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And then, of course, the familiar text that we studied 
just uh, a year ago in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Christ all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's the creator and the sustainer of life. And then we already read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God the Father made the world through the Son, through Jesus. And then Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, which, by the way, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, right? So his theology of Christ, the deity of Christ, his conviction of the deity of Christ goes all the way through all of his letters. And so in Revelation chapter 4, here's a scene in heaven where the lamb is being worshipped, okay? But notice he's being worshipped as the creator. Here's Christ being worshipped. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Bottom line is, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. And how sad it is, as we're going to see, If you just let your eyes run down, John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Here comes the creator of the world to the planet that he designed and built and put in motion, and he shows up on this planet and nobody has a clue who he is. They don't recognize him. And, and his own creatures reject him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I think ultimately that's a reference to the Jews, his own people that he had chosen out of all the other people on the earth. His own people didn't even recognize him as the Messiah, and they killed him. They crucified him. What irony, what tragedy. And yet this is the gospel, the gospel according to John. Father, we thank you for our time here just in these first few verses, just far more than we could ever get our minds around. But Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, through the text of the Gospel of John, but ultimately through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we're, who we're learning about, who we're studying. And so, Lord, I thank you that, um, Lord, we'll never be able to fully comprehend the greatness of, and the glories of Christ. Lord, help us to be content to accept the fact that he has always been there, he always will be there, that he's the one who created us and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for him and Lord, that that would elicit from us the proper response of humble worship and submissive obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We ask you this in his name. Amen.